This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. So nice to see you all. So nice. Thank you, Toro Roshi, so much for your practice and for being here. I got to sit in this seat this morning during Zazen, looking at that Buddha. Of course, all the other Buddhas were in the room. But I was looking at that Buddha with the radiance around the head. Komyo. So I'll be talking a little bit about radiance today. So it was very auspicious that I was looking at Buddha's, of course, I was looking at Buddha's radiance anyway, but looking at the representation of it on your Buddha. Very happy about that. And then I remembered when you were talking about uh, having a class on Blanche's teachings, I remembered, I mean, Shunpo Roshi. Can I tell a little story about her? Yes. Okay. It's a good story. (laughs) (laughs) Inspiring story. Maybe I won't tell it because it's so inspiring. Um, (laughs) So a long time ago, I had asked to receive ordination. And in our tradition, we, of course, as you know, we sew our own robe, sew our own kisa. And Shunpo Roshi was the sewing teacher forever. I learned that art from her. And um, but I received permission, and I was at Tassahara. And uh, usually, in order to find out the size, you get somebody else's robe who's already made one, and you try it on, and then you take the measurements from that. So I was at Tassahara, and, and Shumpo happened to be there also. And she was in her cabin. And I just got word somehow. It was 9 o'clock at night. And so <laughs> what did I do? I went and knocked on her door. <laughs> 9 o'clock at night, I knocked on. Shumpo Roshi's door at Tassahara and said this enthusiastic thing, I, I have permission to sew my own robe, will you help me? And she said, come in. That's the inspiring story. She said, come in. And then she said, let's measure tomorrow. <laughs> but she said, come in to this fairly new person who just knocked on her door at 9 o'clock at night. The reason I thought about not telling it is because often I would say, go away. (laughs) I'm tired. But part of her nature was generally, if she could possibly do it, it was come in. Isn't that amazing? So you, you, you embody that here. You carry that message with, from her. Later on, I'll say that a lot of, um, this, this goes, this connects with something I want to say sort of later on in the talk. But scholars know that one of the factors, one of the reasons that Soto Zen spread widely in Japan, it wasn't a guaranteed thing that Soto Zen, Dogen Zen, would spread widely in Japan. It was totally not guaranteed for reasons having to do with how pure it is. But one of the reasons it spread so widely is because of its openness to women. Mm-hmm. So it was open from the beginning. He was open from the beginning. And then much later, like um, three centuries later, during a change in regime, it didn't become less open to women but um, officially. But it, the, the new regime allowed, basically, uh, those who wanted to oppress women to sort of do that. But the, the, um, the rules of the school didn't change, but the kind of personnel changed a bit. And so it wasn't until several hundred years after Dogen's life that women lost permission to head their own monasteries and things like that. So up until then, pretty equal status. Isn't that interesting? So what I want to talk about today is this mysterious radiance of the Buddha and how we embody it to this day. So that radiance, sometimes it's called light, but when Dogen Zenji talked about it, he used a different character, so ko. Some of you in here are ko, right? Is that the character for light? 
Yeah. So Ko, Ko light. Very nice name, very nice image. But when Dogen wrote about this radiance, he called it Ko no, which means mysterious light. So uh, Keizan Zenji wrote a beautiful book called Danko Roku. Dan is transmission. Ko is light. Roku is record. So transmission of the light. But a little bit different. Uh, Dogen Zenji called it Komium. So part of what I, I want to share with you is how precious it is that our way has survived all this time. It's really precious. And of course, we go around now and we see Zen centers all over the place, and we're all taking care of it. And I'm so privileged. I get to travel quite a bit and see different Zen centers in North America, South America, Japan. I'm so fortunate. But, you know, did you know they're all different slightly? They're all different. And in a way, we're each taking care of it very thoroughly. We're taking care of it very thoroughly. And in a way, like there's a saying by um, Suzuki Roshi, it might even be the title of the book, I can't read all books. Um, uh, Shine one corner of the world. So it's this, it is a Zen teaching, take care of this very thoroughly. And then that connects with all other care. It's great permission. It's like, take care of this, the way Blanche, the way Shunko Roshi took care of me. Here's a person knocking at my door, come in. So the way we take care of the details is really the thing. It's kind of beyond important. It is our practice. So um, the way Boston Zen Center takes care of this place is beautiful. And it's slightly different from the way it's taken care of even just down the street in Houston. And Houston takes care of it slightly differently than San Antonio. San Francisco Zen Center, three, three places, and they take care of it differently in each place with each Eno. Where's Chris? So each Eno does it slightly differently. That's why it's so strong. So we carry, we carry this radiance at the core, and we take care of it thoroughly and differently. Isn't that nice? I think that's, it's very encouraging. So it changes when you see something done differently. You have to look very closely to see if that's what, what you want to do about that. This might be the growth of Zen, the way something is being done differently. Or it might be something that you decide, well, maybe we'll tweak that a tiny bit. But this radiance of Dogen Zenji, he wrote a beautiful writing called Komyo, which is about this radiance of the Buddha. And radiance, um, it could be seen as light. So one of the reasons I like it being komyo, uh, it takes it away from simple, simple light, ko. It's radiance. And so it's the radiance. You can see it as light. Maybe it's spiritual power. Some kind of radiance coming from those teachings. And other statues that you have around, other representations probably, have flames around them because that's the image of us actually in the world. We're surrounded by flames. Bodhisattvas are surrounded by flames and practice there, three-dimensional. The representations are usually two-dimensional, but we live in flames. And um, But you don't see Buddha represented that way. You see Buddha represented in radiance. So that radiance has carried down to now. But Dogen, in his beautiful way, Dogen Zenji, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan, wrote about Komyo and did what he does to it, which is, it's not that we receive the radiance, we are the radiance. We don't just have the radiance. He says, the radiance has us. The radiance has us, and then what will we, how will we act? 
The radiance embodies us. We embody the radiance. And the way, how do you think Dogen Zenji would say we manifest that? Practice. Zazen. Very close, but for him, practice Zazen, enlightenment. So for Dogen Zenji, the manifestation of this radiance is Zazen. We're sitting in the Buddha's enlightenment. We are the Buddha's enlightenment in the sitting posture, which is true to this day, and all Soto Zen centers have a lot of Zazen, have this teaching. And I'm going to suggest, though, which is what is kind of true, I'll say that this is kind of true, historically interesting. When during Dogen's time, because it's so hard to just sit in Zazen manifesting the light, like from now on, let's just sit in Zazen maybe 18 hours a day and manifest the radiance, okay? If new people come in, we just say, have a seat there and manifest the radiance. Our, our places would kind of shrink, wouldn't they? <laughs> so Dogen's actual temples, he kept going more and more far away from, of course, there was a lot of warfare. He had to go away from lots of flames. But it became quite pure, and um, he focused on his teaching, his writing, and Zazen. Very beautiful. And then he had some great students. We say, uh, or in Soto Zen, we say there are two kinds of karmic worlds that we live in. One is the environment that we live in, and then one is the, the karma of the self. So we kind of forget, I've noticed in our Western, we're trained to be so individualistic, we kind of forget that it's not just my personal karma. Something happens to me because of my personal karma. We kind of have that slant. But in olden times, they were quite clear, and you'll see it in koans, the environment. So what the environment means in ancient times is the, is the karmic environment you're born into. So each of us is born into like 10 kinds of karmic environment. We've got our families, we've got our culture, we've got our era, we have our country. So in the old days, it was seen that you also are the bearer of the karma of your country and your emperor, or now president. So this is interesting, isn't it? So in Dogen's time, he had the great, good environmental karmic fortune to have students who could carry his message. He could have been a, a Pratyeka Buddha, somebody who uh, is enlightened on their own and doesn't get the message out. That's what that's called. Could have done that. But luckily, and his works were hidden for hundreds of years. People didn't know about Shobogenzo. Dogen's great, great writings about Zen. And just a slight side note, there's a new translation that was just completed, eight volumes of Shobo Genzo, and it's incredible. So I hope you get a copy for your library. You did? It's in my house at the moment. Oh, it's such a treasure. And they're sold out. I know. So I'm hoarding the Dharma. <laughs> Your job. Take, take yeah. care of it. Care Don't worry. <laughs> it's such a treasure, and all of us in our generation right now are lucky to be here at the publication of this document. It's taken more than 25 years, and the Soto Shu headquarters paid for these scholars to do this for 25 years. I know. And they sold this, the first publication, at cost. And it's incredible. And the translators want to get Dogen's words to us. So it's team translation. They want to get the words to us with as much of his intention as possible. So some of the sentences are, as they say, ugly. But because it's a team, they were trying to, and maybe succeeded, eliminating like personal bias. So all other translations of Shobogenzo have the bias of the lead translator. And they leave off, they leave out words that they think will trouble us, and they put them in in footnotes so that that's why it's eight volumes instead of this big, it's this big. You'll love it.
<laughs> so Dogen was working on that, but he also had great students, and one of them is Koun Ejo. How many of you have heard of Koun Ejo? Okay. And do you mind if I tell you about a few of these really key ancestors who've made it possible for us to practice Zen? Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Because this is a good year. We just celebrated the 100th anniversary of Soto Zen in North America. So we're, in, we're now in our second, we're in our 200th year, and we've entered the 200th year of Zen in America. Brought to us by everybody at Zenshuji and everybody at Sokoji who took care of it in their way. They took care of this beautiful practice and let everybody in. The story that circulates that uh, at Sokoji in San Francisco, Suzuki Roshi came um, and then the Japanese-American congregation kicked him out because these um, people wanted to practice Zazen. It's not true. It's that in Japan, it's very often the case that there are many temples right next door to each other. The head of uh, Sokoji now, uh, Kurotake-san, young guy, grew up in a temple in Japan, and the street is called the Street of 33 Temples. <laughs> and they're all right next door to each other. 33 individual Soto Zen temples. So if you can inhabit that world for a minute, and then there's another person who's in a town of 400 Soto Zen temples, a small town. So when Suzuki Roshi started San Francisco Zen Center, which would really focus on Zazen, there was no thought that these would then become separated. Mm. All temples help each other. Mm. So I, when we look at that history, we can think the Americans didn't understand that because they hadn't received that teaching that all temples do it slightly differently and they help each other. So the story, the importance of Zenshuji and Sokoji, you know, thank you so much Zenshuji and Sokoji for coming and letting us have this practice. And then in a couple of weeks I'll go to Hawaii because their temple is 120 years old. It was established before Hawaii was a state. So I'll go and help celebrate that. And in Hawaii, they do it slightly differently also. They have hula classes. <laughs> can, we, can we incorporate that? Yes. <laughs> Lots of flowers. And the priests wear, instead of wearing three layers, which are, it's kind of hot in Hawaii, we should do this. <laughs> they have on a shirt. They wear the the most important thing, the, the okesa from Shakyamuni Buddha. They wear a shirt, dress shirt, and a tie. Mm -hmm. And then the okesa. Isn't that cute? <laughs> so we're taking care of it, and we have to acknowledge our environment. So Koonejo says, and the stories say, he never left Dogen Zenji's side. He was totally devoted to Dogen Zenji. And he wrote things down. And in his, he understood that Dogen, that the, the fundamental teaching of Dogen is this radiance, and expressed it in 95,000 different ways. But the fundamental thing is that this radiance comes, we are it, it is us. So Koenjo wrote a, um, a writing about it also, about Komio. He said, we know that the sitting meditation, the zazen of our school, is absorption in the treasury of radiance, directly from burning lamp, the Buddha before Buddha, and Shakyamuni. What other doctrine might there be? So Zazen itself is sitting in the absorption of the treasury of light. Which is why, you know, we often say Zazen is, is good for nothing. <laughs> because we're just sitting in the treasury of light. He also said, do you want to escape? <laughs> Reciting scriptures, performing prostrations, raising and lowering each foot, Everything is the manifestation of the great function of light. 
So students should plunge body and mind into the treasury of light, free and ease the whole body in the light of Buddha, sitting, reclining, and walking around therein. That's Koan Angel. And then, so he was important. He really helped preserve Dogen Zen's teachings. And then, because of good karma, he had some good students also. So Keizan Zenji is very important. I'll say something like two more, two more names I'm giving you, Keizan and Gasan. So in Japan, we don't, when we're there, we don't just say Dogen Zenji. We always say Dogen Zenji and Keizan Zenji. So Dogen Zenji is considered, I'm sorry, I'm going to do some gendered stuff. Dogen Zenji is called the father, and Keizan Zenji is called the mother of Soto Zen. And this is gendered in the sense of the old-fashioned way of understanding parenthood, where the father kind of is the strict one. You must do Zazen. <laughs> and Keizan is the nurturing one, based a lot of his teachings on dreams. There are many texts about the dreams that guided Keizan. His, he was born because of a dream of his mother, and he himself had many dreams. Both Dogen and Kohn, and, and all three of them, had women students, so it was not, um, not unusual at that time to also have a lot of women students, and a lot of Kazan's students also had dreams and guided their centers because of dreams. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. Yeah, and Kazan had another quality, like we have, he traveled around various places in Japan, and he took teachings from other Buddhist traditions, especially the esoteric traditions, where there's a lot of ritual in order to bring us into alignment with the great radiance. He traveled around and seen that. You don't see much of that in a strict Soto Zen temple. You just see Zazen few chants, but he had traveled and seen a lot of ritual. Well, actually, the reason we have chanting is because of Kazan, because he got to see how important it is to do these physical practices that bring us in alignment with the great mystery. So Kazan is the mother, and Dogen is the father. They're both the parents of Soto Zen. So uh, when Japanese people come and visit us here, I haven't mentioned Kazan. Kazan's 750th, the 700, it's called a Hoyo, the 750th anniversary of Kazan Zenji's death is happening now, all through next year. And we get to finally appreciate Kazan Zenji. And I have to say, it's meant a lot to me to learn more about what Kazan Zenji did for us and how we can appreciate that great work. So part of what, so there will be big celebrations in Japan next year. Kind of, I get a little shivery when I think about it because we're so fortunate. But another part of Keizan Zenji's uh, heritage, is that heritage? Does it go this way? Legacy. Legacy to us is that he had, he was fortunate to himself have seven great students. So I said I would only mention one more name, and that's Gasan. Are you still okay with this? <laughs> you know, in, in Japan, it's okay to have this long history behind us, flavoring everything we do. In the West, in England, and a little bit in America too, we like to think we just do it ourselves. So, I'm telling you, we don't just do it ourselves. <laughs> so Kazan had seven great students. He didn't meet Dogen. He was born a little after Dogen had died, but he was devoted to Dogen's teachings and to his teacher Cohen's teach, teachings. Okay, so he was there in sort of the middle of Japan, maintaining this very important practice of the radiance. And still, there was a lot of turmoil. The turmoil in our our country is tiny compared to what was going on in Japan at that time. And Kazan was maintaining this practice and cultivating his seven, he had eight major disciples, 
three of them were women, so five of them were men. And then as he was getting ready to die, he um, sent his seven disciples, seven, of, seven out of the eight, to temples throughout Japan. So again, this is why we have Soto Zen. It didn't just stay in this one place. These seven disciples went, and they all took over existing temples that had been abandoned, or it was a time for them to have a new habit, and used Kazan's kind of syncretic method, these various practices, to welcome all the people in the community, just like we're doing now. You go to a new place, you figure out how to carry the radiance and be open, very open to women, no caste divisions. That's Soto Zen in Japan. So this is what's kind of, this will entertain you. Rev Anderson, Tenshin Roshi, considers Kazan, well, scholars also. Kazan was a great, great disciple, but he wasn't like super brilliant. He just liked to copy sutras. So a lot of our ancestors are basically just diligent. <laughs> Dogen was a genius. Kazan was diligent. You know, so thank you, Kazan. And then Kazan had, again, these seven disciples. So it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So you are my seven disciples. <laughs> You're going to the south of Japan. They really need somebody very creative who really understands X. You're going over here to this big temple. They have a lot of members. And you're going to try to introduce the idea of Zazen. So Zazen becomes important. You're going to the heartland. And you have a huge congregation. Take over that temple. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm getting ready to die. <laughs> You're going to very far north Japan. It's cold, but they have a lot of people who've been you know, practicing something. So go help them. <laughs> so you're going to the most important temple. You're my main successor. Your, your name is Meho. You're going to really lead this temple that's already very strong in Soto Zen and bring it to you know, great good health. And you're going to a temple of artists. They're, they're very uh, good practitioners. And they know how to make all these cool Buddhist toys. So <laughs> run that temple. You are my least promising temple. <laughs> Your name is Gasan, my least promising student. And there's this prayer temple over here. All they do is do prayers. Please go and run that temple. Good luck. See you later. <laughs> There's a great story about Gasan in his, this is his enlightenment story with Kazan. One thing about Gasan, I'll say, this is a, to, what do you call it? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. According to the great, great scholars who've done this translation of uh, Shobogenzo for us, Gasan is actually the glue that ties us to Dogen. Isn't that nice? There's Kazan, there's Koan, there are a lot of great disciples. Gasan is the glue. Gasan's awakening story, and it became an important story in our school. So one night, Kazan is watching a full moon. There's one coming up. Kazan turns to Gasan and asks, you know there are two moons? Gaussan says, I don't know. Kazan says, if you don't know the two moons, you won't inherit my dharma. Sorry, Gaussan. <laughs> but this is an important story. It's not uh, just the what it sounds like. The two moons are in this context, there's a moon up there. There's a celestial moon. And then if we were at a lake or something, there's a watery moon. There's the moon reflecting the water. So when Kazan was talking with his, his beloved student, who wasn't 
as grounded. It turns out that the reason Gassan was not considered very um, promising was because the rest could go out into the world and meet the situation. Gassan said, I don't know there are two moons. I'm just into the radiance. I'm just into the flowery expressions of Zazen and, and Dharma. She makes a gesture of drifting. That's me. <laughs> so Gassan was the most embedded in Zazen. And so uh, Kazan didn't think that he could take the push and pull of, of being in a Zen center. Isn't that interesting? Because it's not easy to go and run a temple, right? You guys are already having problems, aren't you? <laughs> They're wanting to do things their own way, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yours is the most creative, so you're having a good time. Fun. She's <laughs> so Gassan took over this temple. You know, there are two big temples that share the head templeship. They go back and forth every year. AAG founded by Dogen, Sojiji founded by Kazan, and they share the co-leadership. So Gassan was at this small prayer temple, and he then sent his disciples out and about. And he would people would come, and he would say, oh, you're very promising. You go down there. There's an empty temple. Please inhabit that. You go run that temple. Just see what you do, see what happens. And then, partly because of the karma of the time, partly because of Gassan's real value, his temple became Sojiji. So then it was, he, re, he named it again Sojiji, and then uh, it has become the second most prominent temple, although it moved later. And this is, again, environmental karma, because another kind of observable fact is that during the warring periods in Japan, a lot of temples were burned down. Buddhism, they tried to smash Buddhism, or there were all sorts of conflicts. So our trouble with you know having people in our culture recognize that Buddhism is actually not a cult, it's actually a very valuable practice, is nothing compared to the what was what Buddhists faced in India and China and Japan. So it just happened that Gassan's temples were more likely to be rebuilt after they were burned down. And then they continue this teaching of Dogen, Keizan, Shobogenzo. They protected these teachings. Will Botiford, who's a very great scholar and Buddhist, said that the temples were burnt down, but even more tragically, the papers were burnt. Mm-hmm. So the, the historical record just kept getting burnt and then rewritten and burnt and rewritten. So I share that feeling. Well, I share the feeling of the fragility of our great, great practice. And um, I share the desire to take care of it in a way that continues to allow it to be open and welcoming. So Botiford said, it is correct to say that at least one factor in the early growth of Soto is because of its openness to women. And he says, uh, documents from Yokoji, which is one of the temples that Keizan's disciples brought to prominence, the list of names of participants, so this is 14th century, in ceremonies and special events. The documents begin with the names of the monastic leader, then the regular monastics, then major patrons, then ordinary donors, and finally, ordinary lay people from the community. In these documents, women appear in every category and outnumber men among donors and lay people. Isn't that fascinating? Doesn't that sort of change your way of thinking about those old days? It did mine. Go women. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, just to finish that theme, Dogen's words and also uh, Gassan's words for the, about, well, Dogen's words about women, but now I'm on 
uh, Ghassan's words, again, the first 20 years of his temple was largely supported by donations from women. And Dogen's words on women were very pos positive, but scholars say his words strongly contradict what others and teachers of his time were saying. And even Esai, who's the Rinzai teacher that Dogen first studied with when he studied Zen before going to China, even he had terrible things to say about women. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. So it's always been a little bit contested for thousands of years. So thank you for letting me tell you about these things, because um, this is a really important year to celebrate our practice, to celebrate how many years has uh, Austin Zen Center been here? The Two. 22? 23. 23. 23. Mm -hmm. We just celebrated our 20th year of having a building. We had a big party. We gave away party favors. Can I tell you what was in the bag? Yes, please do. <laughs> very nice bag, with a very nice label, very zen. And then there was a box of incense a can of LaCroix, <laughs> a little ceramic match dish, and a sponge. There's a few things that people can use. <laughs> so come on down, we have some more sponges. <laughs> so Thausan, again, um, was very flowery and very free, and he said, I seek to train people to allow Zen to flourish and prosper. So even though he wasn't considered, Kazan didn't consider him his um, most, what would you say, most likely to succeed uh, Dharma heir. He is the most. He is the one who succeeded. So thank you, Gassam, for your diligence, your flowery words. <laughs> and your willingness to adapt to circumstances. I, uh, speaking of one more, one more little uh, anecdote celebrating the light, I went last year, not, not last year, two weeks ago, to, uh, <laughs> um, to Sonoma Mountain Zen Center. Do any of you know about Sonoma Mountain Zen Center? Yeah. Okay. It's a very, Sonoma Mountain Zen Center, very important temple. So uh, Jakusho Kwong, Kwong Roshi was a direct student of Suzuki Roshi. Suzuki Roshi really liked Kwong Roshi. And he's very, he was, is a, still very strong. We would have board meetings, he would like this. So Kwong Roshi would come to board meetings and suddenly he would think, this is a bit of nonsense. And so he'd put his head back and shout <laughs> and come back to business. <laughs> so his temple just celebrated its 50th anniversary in Sonoma, California. And it's beautiful. It started in a barn. Now it's added several buildings. But Kwong Roshi is stepping down, and his son, his fifth son, Nyoze Kwong, stepped in at the mountain seat. So when you have, when you become the abbot, it's called ascending the mountain. And usually we build something so you stand up on the mountain and people question you and you take your role. Okay. So Kwong Roshi did his stepping down ceremony the day before. So we're all there and Kwong Roshi walks in, very dignified man, and said, Nyoze is not taking my place. And can you feel the tension in that statement? <laughs> And then he said, Nyoze is taking his own place. Mm -hmm. And then you feel the relaxation and the love in that statement. Nyoze is taking his own place. And throughout the um, ceremony the next day, Nyoze, tears were just coming down his face. He still maintained the posture and did all the things, and the tears were just flowing down his face. So 50 years anniversary. Just to conclude, just a reminder, this radiance coming at us, we, we have the radiance, but again, as Cohen said, the radiance has us. So thank you all very much.
Is there anything you would like to bring up? Yes. Hi. Um, I heard on YouTube a conversation you had with Reverend Shindo Ayuyama. Ayuyama Roshi, yes. About gender equality. Right. And um, it seems as though, and what you were saying, that there was this idea of radiance and that maybe women weren't given the chance to shine. And I wonder, how do you how do you see the future for women in, in America and Zen and or in Japan, for that matter? How do you see that situation? I um, one of the really interesting things that's been going on now for a hundred years is this communication between Japan and uh, and America, and everybody the states and all the other places where uh, Zen temples have been established. And um, the effort to communicate is just so beautiful. So the all the people who take care of it in Japan really want to communicate with us. And then we kind of want to communicate back. It's taken a while to get, you know, more people willing, interested, or in communicating with the people in Japan or to understand that that's what they also really want. So watching that communication is very important. So when visitors come to uh, the United States and Europe, what they see is women in positions of authority. And that's already changed what's happening in Japan. So they're very proud. I don't think without, I don't think if there hadn't been this palpable presence of women here, including women leaders in so many centers, at least half the centers. I don't think that Ayuyama would have been promoted to the position she's in. So they're now really trying to catch up. And so she's in the highest position in modern times that any woman has reached in Japan. And she's terrific, as you probably saw in the interview. She's very strong, but she's had, I shouldn't say but, um, she manifests what you see in a lot of uh, people who've been are members of oppressed groups uh, when they finally get some recognition. She manifests um, like indifference to the issue. She says like, oh, I don't see men and women. Because you have to do that in order to survive sometimes. So it was hard to pin her down to talk about gender issues when she said, I don't see gender. <laughs> But in her books, she's talked a lot about what she had to um, face, what she had to deal with. So I see an impact. And they're really, Japanese monastics are very interested in how they can make, how they can learn from us, how to make it more possible for women to stay ordained in Japan. They still have a long way to go. What we get to learn is something else, which is, um, I say on that issue? Well, just learning to be understanding of the environmental karma that's brought that condition, those conditions about, and not be too hasty to see it from our eyes. So, how's that? Thank you. Yeah. I, when they asked me, the interviewer for that conversation was super. He was a wonderful guy. I really liked him. Very soft, but you know, very good questions. And he asked what some of the moves they could take in Japan to make it make help Japanese male monks understand that women were their equals. And I said, um, it really makes a difference if you train together. Like here we are, sitting all together, everybody doing the same thing. In Tassajara, everybody trains together. All monasteries in the United States, people train together, no separation. Women have positions of power, so you learn how to have a position of, of authority and how to be a follower with each other. So I said that. <laughs> Aoyama Roshi said, that'll never work. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have men and women practicing together. Think of the trouble <laughs> And I said, it's true, it did has caused a lot of trouble, but you have to learn how to deal with it. You have to start sometime. So they're, you know, a little bit, they have some fun ahead. <laughs>
can I just mm -hmm. jump in? I meant to uh, say this before you began, but in addition to being the abbot of uh, Houston Zen Center, Kondrin Roshi is also the head, the director, director, the director of uh, the International, International Center. Center of Soto Shoe in America, which is based in California. This is one reason she travels so much is she's on the road <laughs> representing for Soto Shoe all over. Just you were in Peru recently. She's always traveling, and so I'm very glad she got here. Uh, and she's also uh, the first woman to occupy that position and the first Westerner. Mm -hmm. So this is representing Soto Shu, the Japanese Soto Shu in North America and South America, the Americas, or is it North America? Maybe it's because I was like Gassan. They didn't, they <laughs> so, she won't cause any trouble. <laughs> yeah, I feel very privileged, very privileged. Anything else? Yes. Thank you for your talk. I uh, really appreciate learning more about the history. I don't, you know, I know a little bit about the history of Zen and Japan and like hearing about the role of women. And I was curious just about the persecution of the, it, it sounded like the burning of temples, just how long kind of that went on. Uh, it would stop and start. And a lot of it was associated with the um, basically the shogun or the power that was supporting that temple. So a little bit of it was anti-Buddhist, but a lot of it was, you know, this one is support. This whole batch of temples uh, is um, under the protection of this shogun. So this other shogun would come and just burn them all down like that. Because here's a feeling of, of Zen, of, of Zazen especially, that was very prominent in those days for Gasan and um, all of them really, and Dogen too, you can find it. People who practiced Zazen were seen to have, or believed to have a lot of power. So your Zazen gives you a lot of power. And then that's why people then kind of take care of you because it's, it's this powerful force that you've you've incubated and you have. So having a, a temple is a place where that spiritual power can grow and then manifest. So, you know, you've probably, some of you have heard at least that the, the warrior class really supported Zen because Zen welcomed warriors. Well, part of it is because the warriors wanted that power. That was awesome. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, so it's like one Zen or Buddhist party. No, it was warriors. Warriors. Yeah, wouldn't be the Buddhists. There were war warrior Buddhists um, in Tibet. I, I'm not sure if there were any in Japan. Yeah, Buddhists. I mean, we're just a bunch of people, and so some of them would they get very territorial. Yeah. So the temples would get burned down, just as kind of um, what do you call it? Collateral damage in the other wars that were happening. Is there physical violence involved in the burning of these temples against congregants or? That's a really good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. It just seems one might go along with the other based on history. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I will, I will look at that. It certainly doesn't, it isn't a highlight. So probably people just ran away and hid. Wasn't that? But again, as Will Botiford said, the records were lost. Mm. <laughs> and that's been so important to us as humans to keep the records. Pat? Um, isn't there a, another ancestor in our chant between Goan and Joe and, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, Tetsuki Kai? What yeah. happened to him? Well, there's a whole other historical epic. Do you want me to tell you about it? There will be a test later on. <laughs> Tetsu occupied a very interesting position. Do you want to hear about it? Yeah. Okay. Tetsu Gikai was one of Dogen's 
disciples, but Dogen, or he was a student, and Dogen Zenji declined to give him Dharma transmission. So this radiance of light, oh, I forgot to mention, Keizan Zenji wrote that record called Denko Roku, which is the record of all the names of all the people that shows up on our Kechi Miyaku record. Keizan made that. So he's very important. He, as Reb said, he was more of a kind of a diligent rather than a brilliant student. But the Denko Roku is brilliant. It has all these koans, because we were, our school was working with koans a lot back in the day. Not as tests, but just as descriptions of the world. So, Dogen Zenji didn't give Tetsugikai Dharma transmission. He let him stay in the temple. And then after Dogen died, and Koan became the next abbot, then, um, or not, not, Koan Ejo became the next abbot, but Tetsu was pushed to the side. And one of the stories, probably a little bit poetic, is that Tetsu Gikai didn't have grandmotherly mind. He didn't have the kind of nurturing side of Zen. And um, But another story was that, like a lot of centers, when the main leader that everybody reveres left, Ehe Dogen died, there was some struggle over who would take over. And, and Eheji then entered a period of dysfunction. And so he then, he became important in restoring Eheji and received Dharma transmission from Koan Ejo. So he's important sort of for holding on to AHG, but he isn't, he had no students that he sent out and established other temples. Thank you for asking. They all have such great stories. Thank you. I guess I'm wondering in your experience, what helps to connect to that environmental karma, what helps to connect to that collective consciousness, especially given that in our Western society we're all so individualistically trained, mm -hmm. what helps to break that a little bit and as a sangha move forward? This sangha is so important. You know, understanding that coming here, even if you can't come all the time, but you think about it, it's a shaping influence and it really helps understand. And all the efforts that all the sanghas are making to restore our connections to the environment, to our Japanese roots, to you know all the roots that we bring into when we come here. All of that has to be looked at very diligently. And then you feel it. You feel the impacts on you. So we're not trying to train ourselves to get this very narrow focus. We're trying to uh, expand our capacity to see all the things that influence us. So for me, one of the things I rely on, and I encourage you all to explore, is I rely on seeing how other places are taking care of it. That helps me. And so you could go, well, you've traveled, so you need to go on pilgrimages and seeing how see how other places have done it. Then you get a sense of a big sangha. So everything is reaching out to help us, but a lot of it looks like problems. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hello. Hello. Um, I'm online. <laughs> and I've been curious about your own history. You spent many years at Tassajara. And I've been curious about that. One time I asked another teacher who was there a long time if it was hard to leave. And he said, no. He said, you have to leave. And so I was curious about your own Thoughts about all that, about that amount of training at Tassajara? I didn't know you have to leave. <laughs> they didn't tell me that. No, I um, was, I thought that I would stay at Tassajara even longer. And um, I was there for 12 years. And I thought I would stay longer because I love that life. And I love, I especially love the guest season. I love the guest season because all these people come and you get to maybe be their first exposure to practice and you have this impact that then goes out into the world. 
I love the residents as well, but the guest season, I thought, is so important. And I liked being the Sheikah, things like that, taking care of the property. But then I um, received an invitation to go and visit Houston because they needed help sewing rockasus and Rev had been visiting Houston Zen Center a couple of times and he wanted somebody to go. So we were in a priest meeting in, it happened to be at Green Gulch, and he said, would somebody go to Houston? And my hand just sort of went up. <laughs> the hand went up. <laughs> and um, I do have some Texas karma, as I revealed to Kristen on our drive up here. My mother was born in Fort Worth, but then she left when she was 16. But I still, I, you know, I have roots. So my name, my name Galen, is actually a southern name. She gave it to me as a Texas name. But people think, oh, it must be Welsh, or is that your Dharma name? <laughs> <laughs> so I received this invitation to go to Houston, and then I, I loved the people, and I went back and went back. And then I, it never occurred to me to go. And then I went. And I was uh, on a... I like this story because I, I reconnected with it recently, but I was in Green Gulch for something and um, we were having an anti-war protest that was going to walk across the Golden Gate Bridge and the Episcopalians organized it so everybody was asked to wear their full robes and walk from the north side of the bridge and from the south side of the bridge and then stand there and we had big banners posing an invasion and we were holding hands, it was great. And then walking back to the Marin County side, I was walking with an Episcopalian priest. I don't remember his name, but he had bright red hair. I remember that. And he said, what's your calling? And I had never had, no one had ever asked me, I'd never calling. So I did what Zen students do. I looked at myself and I said, Houston is my calling. And then I agreed to move to Houston. Wow. Still there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I so appreciate the talk about ancestors and, and our connections and our connections to the past and future. And Texas is a place where a lot of I've known people who've left because of things like politics. But I think, you know, maybe Texas is the place that where Zen really need, is needed is <laughs> part of my thinking. Anyway, thank you very much. You're welcome. It's true, isn't it? Zen is really needed in Texas. <laughs> Universally, all 100%. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'll just say this about it. Our land in uh, Chapel Hill are 40 acres, and you're all welcome to come. We have great neighbors. And I know that if we talked about certain topics, we would not have an affinity. <laughs> like there's a sign that says, um, you know, defended by the Second Amendment, things like that. And, and yet we get along. We get along because we care for the land. We, we're neighborly with each other. And so Texas needs that kind of spaciousness, too. I, I really love our neighbors. They take good care of us. And we just... We don't talk about the unimportant things. I keep playing with this. This was just given to me, so that's why I cannot. <laughs> it's a traveling kotsu. You carry this slightly smaller one, and I just took it out of the box this morning. It was given to me by visiting the head of Shimucho, and he gave he just gave me this present. So. That's why I'm in Zen. <laughs> Beautiful adornments of practice. Anything else, friends? Can I tell a tiny, tiny story? Tell the tiny story. Yes, Gasson. <laughs> so th this is the story, and those of you who've been here much longer than I have, and you can know differently, please correct me, but the radiance behind the light ahead of our Buddha apparently came from Costco. <laughs> the story I heard was that Abbott at the time was shopping with his co-tantos, his, his assistants, 
And I think there's one actually in 704 in the guest house across the street too, just mm -hmm. on the wall, but had this vision of this is where this belongs behind the head of our Buddha. So that's where that comes from. I loved shopping with Kosho. He had a great has a great eye. <laughs> Thank you, Costco. <laughs> okay, good time to stop. Thank you all so much.